My name is Egbert Perry, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Integral Group, and this is Create the Village, a podcast that provides a platform where leaders from the private, public, and nonprofit sectors come together to speak candidly about the challenges facing American cities. The Penn Institute for Urban Research, or Penn IUR as it's called, is dedicated to advancing cross-disciplinary urban-focused research, instruction, and civic engagement on issues relevant to cities around the world. I sat on the board for a number of years and was able to develop a great working relationship with the co-directors, Jeannie Birch and Susan Wachter. Penn IUR's charge is to take a look at the world's cities as the global population becomes increasingly urban. The Institute seeks to understand cities, specifically how decision-making and public policy is being developed at the local, national, and international levels, and to engage with public and private partners to influence both policy and practice on key urban issues. Create the Village was intended to be a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. And that's where we started. But we got off on the COVID-19 track for several episodes. In a few weeks, we're planning to pivot back to where we started. But I wanted to wrap up the COVID for now with a conversation with Jeannie and Susan. They are two people who are thinking and writing about real estate, architecture, and planning on a regular basis. Their opinions impact both academic thought and public policy. It's not an overstatement to say, when they speak, people listen. I sat down with them recently to get their current thinking about COVID and its impact on real estate markets in the short and long terms. For instance, I wanted to understand whether there would be a lasting impact on architecture and planning following this pandemic, now that social distancing will be a concern in the future. Before we get into the conversation with Susan and Jeannie, I want to let you know that in next week's episode, I plan to share my personal thoughts and lessons learned during the first 120 days of COVID-19. We'll take a couple of weeks off, and then we'll be right back into it with conversations about community development. So here's the conversation with Jeannie and Susan. Jeannie references some visual slides that you can find on our website, createthevillage.com, and on our Facebook page. So Jeannie, uh, you, you recently published a, a piece. Um, I, I forgot the name of it. It's like, Cities of the Future Will... Dot, dot, dot. And, and somehow in there you were thinking through um, the thoughts and recommendations from a bunch of scholars that are focused on what they think changes to cities and urban life will be like in light of where we are and what we're going through. And I'm just curious if there are any learnings from that and what trends there are that you're seeing uh, as a result of that work that you, you, you did to write that. Uh, yes, I did write that, and I wrote that about three weeks ago. Um, at any rate, to answer your question, designers used to look at certain 
planners and designers used to look at certain metrics uh, that had to do with land use. It had to do with various other, other things. But right now, what they're looking at, of course, is public health. And there's been a fair amount of information coming out through the press as to what we need to be thinking about in terms of what we're talking about when we're talking about how to prevent the spread of this pandemic. And one of the big policies, of course, is social distancing, because all of this is going to come to play when you think about what our cities should look like and what the buildings within them should look like and what the transport should look like and so forth. So here you have an image of uh, what people think happens when someone coughs on and you're standing next to that person and, and the dimensions that we're talking about in terms of needing to keep people away from each other. And these range from three feet to 25 feet. So you can imagine what this means for a restaurant or what this means for a classroom in a school. What happens if someone's on an airplane and coughs and all those purple uh, uh, clouds that you see spreading throughout the airplane and finding the little dots, again, shows you what people are thinking about in terms of this particular pandemic and why people are fearful of getting into the publicly accessible amenities that we have here in the United States. So uh, these are the way people are beginning to think about it and they're beginning to think about how to show people what to do when you need to social distance. So on the left, we have a picture of a problem with a, with a sidewalk, a typical sidewalk, which has not been planned to deal with this particular problem. And, you know, until we get a vaccine, maybe in 18 months, we're going to have to continue thinking about social distancing. And here's the Parks Commissioner of New York City with a little sign that he has put forward to show people what this means if you're in public space to deal with where you should be in that space relative to your friend's and so forth. Later on, I'll show you what this means in terms of implications for design. Thank you, and definitely. I want to hear that because obviously, deciphering between what is temporary and what's a permanent set of dynamics that will get incorporated is going to be an important part of what we're struggling with and have to resolve. It strikes me that what both you and Susan are doing are parallel different but parallel, and under the same big, broad rubric. So Susan, your work, that piece you recently co-authored, was titled, There's No Substitute for Cities. And it's almost a defensive premise, like now you're having to explain to someone that there is no substitute for cities as if someone is saying that cities are bad things. So what's behind that title? And where are you going with that? Egbert, you are right. Uh, The title is somewhat insistent. Uh, It does suggest that the city as a concept is now under pressure. And it does suggest the other side of this, there is no substitute for a city, which is a question. This is the answer to the question. The question is, will COVID kill cities? And you're absolutely right to point to a short term and a long term. And we're very much in the short-term part of this uh, response. But even in the short-term, what has emerged is the beginnings of a whole new reality. And that reality has really certain threats that are not short-term to cities, uh, which is why there is no substitute in the insistence on that. And the short-term very much, of course, is waiting for, it's a waiting game, waiting for a vaccine, waiting for an effective cure. 
And when that's in place, there is going to be a rush back to the city. Uh, you can feel it, it's palpable. And uh, the research that's in place now for quite a bit uh, argues for the tremendous importance of amenities, which can only be in cities to attract particularly young people. And the reason it can only be in cities is because the amenities have to have a certain density uh, of population in order to be uh, economically feasible and profitable. And there needs to be congregations of amenities that work together, what economists call consumption agglomeration economies. And this has really been the lifeblood of the revitalization of cities that has occurred since the Great Recession. And somewhat earlier, really starting in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, where we see young people, particularly young college graduates, flocking back to cities, particularly drawn to amenities. Uh, research of a colleague of mine in the Wharton Real Estate Department and also a Penn IUR fellow, Jesse Hanbury, uh, has shown uh, definitively that it is cities and neighborhoods where these amenities are that are the great attractor for young people. So where's the threat? Ultimately, young people are coming not only for the fun and games, but they're coming because of job opportunities back to cities. And in the great flow out of cities in the period from 1970 to 2000, when two thirds in research that I've done with my colleague and our Penn RUR colleague, Richard Voith, uh, shows two thirds of the major cities lost population from 1970 to 2000. And that includes uh, Perhaps surprisingly, cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Miami and New York City, Chicago, all of, all of Washington, D.C., Boston, all of the, the very large cities lost population. So that was reversed. And that was reversed because, in fact, although population moved out, uh, particularly middle income to the suburbs, uh, what didn't happen is the jobs didn't move out. In fact, there was movement back, particularly to university knowledge centers and knowledge center cities, as we all know now. But the question is, and what's been posed by COVID, is will this centralization of jobs that are uh, leading to needed pools of young labor, and where are the pools of talent? Pools of talent are in cities. Well, this great attractor of firms back to cities, that is the pool of talent, hold. And I do think it will. That's why I say there's no substitute for the cities. But that doesn't mean that there won't be, we've already seen the in-place plans that firms are already um, implementing to uh, have uh, basically half the office uh, workers that they had previously. And this is not just a response to the virus and to contagion. This is a response to the sea shift in how people work and the working at home phenomenon. Once that habit is changed and liked, there's a sunk cost, sunk cost in technology, sunk cost in habits. And I think that bridge has been crossed. So, okay. So, just let me just stay on that one little bit more because you mentioned certain cities and you said you mentioned the big cities that lost population and so on. And what we've seen over the last two and a half months or let's say nine weeks 
is that the there is a dynamic that's happening, but it's a different dynamic depending on where you are in different parts of the country. So is it safe to say there's no such thing as a national market, especially now, but in general, when you're looking at real estate, but especially now in what is a COVID-influenced real estate world, both short and long-term? I'm going to be edgy here because obviously the right answer is there's no such thing as a national market. And I make that point all, all right. the time that mm-hmm. you're not buying real estate in the U.S. You're not buying an average of every piece of real estate in the U.S. You're buying in a specific place. But in this respect, no, there is a national market because, and there is even a global market. This technology shift is global and mm-hmm. the technology shift is to remote working. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, so Jeannie, um, let's talk about then the architecture and planning implications for a moment. And so, you know, I, I, I know for, on a personal note, I will change the way in which our office works moving forward, okay? The balance between the use of technology and in, in-person engagement and interaction. And commercial and residential spaces, obviously today, very different than they were 30 years ago. So when we look at new home construction and living spaces are larger than they were and commercial commercial office space in particular, not only has changed, but is changing per what Susan was just saying a moment ago. And the dot-com culture means that you always had more open and flowing workspaces than individual office. And individual offices are not in high demand quite the way they were before. All of that said, um, I think we're living through this short-term shift with how office and residential spaces change. Just talk a little bit about what you're seeing or how you think that shift is happening and what the implications are as we, as we go through the architecture and planning aspects of this. Sure. And I'd like to also um, go back a second to what you said about we're living through the short term and the long term. And I think in the short term, when we look at at public health, people tend to think we're just dealing with this pandemic. But when you look back at the flu statistics, uh, the annual flu statistics that we had in the United States, we've had really tremendous difficulties with that, but we haven't paid much attention to it. I was just looking at the uh, CDC's uh, predictions for this year for flu, not pandemic, but flu. And um, back before the pandemic, they were estimating like 62,000 deaths, uh, somewhere between 410 and 740,000 visits to hospitals. So the idea of paying attention to public health as a metric now, as well as these change behaviors that Susan was just referring to, I think is going to combine to create new ways of thinking about things. So it's it's not a, so this health thing is is not short term. I think it really is uh, something that we will be thinking about in the long term. So Jeannie, so Jeannie, stop there. That, you know, I never thought about that. And that's an interesting data point on flu. And I guess what, what that really says is it's because the pandemic COVID-19 is new that it hasn't been calculated in our normal lifestyle and what we think about and so on, that we don't think about the relative impact of it because we've we've learned to live with it. We hadn't exactly. we hadn't yeah. learned to live with COVID nineteen, so we got 
blindsided by it, and so now it's a new issue. And even if the numbers are not remarkably different from flu, it still means that because it's new, it's getting a lot more attention, right? And not only that, we, we learned to live with it, but we also learned to live with something else. We learned to live with it health disparities among our population. Mm -hmm. And these health disparities, as everyone now knows, because we're seeing it with the pandemic, is that uh, the frontline workers, uh, low and income, uh, moderate people who don't have the best health care, uh, particularly um, minorities, um, are, are, are specifically afflicted by this at higher rates than the more affluent members of our, popu of our population. Mm -hmm. So. All of this, I think, needs to go into our consideration as to what we are going to think about with the futures of the city. So I wanted to start from the highest level possible, which is thinking about what's happening as a result of the pandemic. And that is this idea of strengthened regional cooperation. That um, over the past few weeks, we've seen governors getting together and saying, all right, we are going to cooperate in dealing with this pandemic. In, in seven state allegiances or five state allegiances and so forth. And I think this is really important from the larger scale point of view that they've learned to cooperate with themselves and, and perhaps they will continue this cooperation when they think about some of the planning issues that we have. Transportation, for example, uh, housing markets shouldn't have to uh, stick within uh, political jurisdictions and so forth. So I think that's one big thing that is uh, uh, changing. Uh, in terms of getting now back to the neighborhood, let's think about things that are, are we will be working on as well. And you well know, Egbert, because you're an expert in doing this, is the rise of the mixed-use neighborhood and how important that will be with these changed habits that we've talked about, uh, that there'll be more interest in working remotely, which means that the mixed-use neighborhoods probably will change in character a bit. Again, I return to you and your expertise in terms of the mix that one has in a mixed-use neighborhood with regard to housing types, but also land uses. How much retail, what kind of restaurants, what kind of shops and so forth will be put into mixed-use neighborhoods now because this of this change uh, activities that we're, we were, were talking about. In terms of uh, real estate and, and thinking about downtowns and CBDs, I fear that because of the retail changes, I don't know if Susan mentioned that, but we're all aware of how much online buying is happening now. Um, there's gonna be less need perhaps for some of the retail space that we have and less need for the office space. So what are we gonna do with these offices? Again, I turn to you to help us think through how we might convert them. And we do have practice in doing that. If you look at so many of the downtown revitalization programs that started back in the 90s, uh, when uh, investors began to think about what to do about Class C real estate and turn them into housing, um, that uh, occurred pretty smoothly. And so I would think, again, when we talk about the housing issue, uh, perhaps there's some union that will occur uh, between the owners of uh, downtown offices and retail and the need for more housing. Uh, Gensler, within the buildings themselves, by the way, Gensler has done a terrific amount of studies looking at how to uh, deal with circulation and reorganizing space and so forth. But they've really done a lot of uh, thinking from the point of view of measuring spaces and thinking about where desks might be, what entrances might occur, and so forth. In terms of new construction, I think 
the big bad boy that everyone's been talking about, and this has been density. And people really, in general, I think, don't have a concept of the different ways density can be expressed. I agree with Susan and the fact that cities are not going to go away, but we may be thinking differently about how we want to arrange our density, again, from the point of view of preparing for resilience and the public health issues that we've been talking about. So, so this is, I, I struggle with this, and Susan, I want you to weigh in on this as well. It's a continuation of what that last couple of comments that Jeannie just made, but we're doing all of this as if somehow this is a permanent way of life. I'm talking about the social distancing aspect. Obviously, the shift for more technology engagement inside of the way in which offices function and so on, and therefore reducing size of offices and the impact, the ripple effect that will have. Yeah, that's permanent. That's, that's long-term, let's say. But social distancing is a priority until there is a vaccine. So if we see that being integrated in, the more, in a more permanent way, is that because of our fear that today is COVID-19, but tomorrow it could be something else, and something else 19 or something 20 or 21, but it's around the corner and we're really preparing for a repeat of something like this in the future. Is that what we're dealing with? Certainly we're preparing for things like this in the future, but we're also finding that some of these things that have emerged in this pandemic are quite agreeable. And that uh, perhaps <laughs> this kind of building is not so agreeable and this kind of arrangement, which less concentration in one place and, and more spread out density is more agreeable from the point of view of walkability, from the point of view of social life and the kinds of encounters you could have in a building that is lower, there was many entrances and egresses as opposed to the tower in the park. I mean, these are discussions that um, we will continue to have um, in the future, but I think the, what, what we've seen is behavior changes that have to do with how we work and how we live, as well as our great fear about preparedness are all mixed together in thinking about what our city of the future might look like. Uh, we have lots of images that, that are coming out in the newspaper about how uh, tables have to be spread out in restaurants and so forth. Well, maybe that's a good thing. They were awfully close in the past and you could hear your neighbor talking all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> there may be a few good things that are, that are coming out of this uh, as far as that goes uh, in terms of public space. Uh, because of the demand for public space, as people in cities who are stuck in their apartments, what I'm showing here is uh, images from Milan where they added more biking spaces and they're going to make these permanent. They discovered that people really found this extremely agreeable to do this and they will uh, make permanent changes in how uh, their public space is arranged. And transportation, mass transportation, you know, we took for granted that crowding was a good thing and it didn't matter if this metro wasn't so clean or whatever. <laughs> and so I think that um, all of these things that we have learned in terms of the building, the operation and the maintenance of our public amenities are going to be extremely important in the future and will come into the considerations of how our cities will be planned and operated. So Susan, so no, thank you. Susan, your thoughts on, on that and additions to that, um, the permanent, long-term, short-term, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, uh, 
is really no one has the answer yet. But go ahead. Sorry. Yes, sorry. So absolutely agree with Jeannie that uh, this short term is making way for a new long term, but with a, uh, some nuance. First of all, you know, the retail cop apocalypse was upon us. That was a term that was upon us uh, prior to COVID. Uh, what COVID has done is made that retail apocalypse permanent and put it on steroids. So it's right here, right now. Uh, and together with real estate, it's almost a uh, together with commercial, it's a real estate apocalypse, and I'm I am concerned what it does for cities. But let let's get back to this way of life and crowding, and whether that's short term or long term. I actually think that if we do have a vaccine in the next year or so, let's say by the end of the year, wouldn't that be wonderful? That we will get back to crowding pretty quickly. I think you can see that in the way people, you know, surge the beaches. Um, but for actual police, people really want to be on those beaches and crowding on the beaches. I think that we will get back to to crowding where crowding is appropriate. We will go back to large stadium events, assuming we have a cure or a vaccine. But what I think is permanent is the uh, new way of looking at a home that a home is not just a center or a, a retreat for sleeping and weekend. It is a workplace, a uh, experiential place, and it is as well as a retreat. And I think the trend uh, that's already there in home improvement is going to be for the long term. We are going to want more spaces. We're going to want to have the um, resilience of having a home to go back to. Perhaps for some fortunate people, this will uh, accelerate demand for second homes as well. And I also think that there is a short-term and long-term uh, issue of affordability, but that's very tied into the economy. So perhaps we'll come back to that. So, all right. So then I have a, a last question, and then I'm going to ask each of you to just leave us with a thought so you can have that running around in your head um, while we're, we're dealing with this next question. And, and it really has to do, Susan, with given how much you study um, the economy and the implications on, uh, of, on the economy, one of the things that is, could be inferred by what we've seen happening is people in high-cost cities um, that are less financially well-off. They're either close to being unemployed or they're underemployed and so on. They're going to have to leave some of these high-cost cities in particular to find more economically friendly environments in which to, uh, to live. And so does that mean we, we should expect to see, and I'm asking you to do some speculating here, but expect to see movement away from high-cost cities even more than we've seen in the past or at a greater pace as people try to find more livable and affordable um, environments? And, and what does that portend for um, those cities? Yes, I, I know you're asking me to speculate, but I do think that uh, there's uh, data to support that supposition. As you noted, the move to more affordable places was, in fact, already a number of years in place. 
uh, prior to COVID. But the major impact socially, from my perspective, that will persist long run from COVID is this worsening of economic and social equality. And with the decline of in-place retail and hospitality, hotels, uh, all those jobs are now in question. And there will be a permanent impact mm -hmm. in retail and in-place jobs. And so these, this is where uh, our uh, lower income labor force, this is where their jobs are. Mm -hmm. And already there's data which shows something like 40% of lower income, lower skilled workers are out of jobs. That's not going to come back so quickly. Can I say something here, Susan? I just wanted to, because we have to wrap up, which is I think this is the time where it's really important for national leadership. National leadership to think about what we need to do in regions in terms of making them more um, amenable, uh, finding ways to deal with job training and capacity building because we're going to enter a new, new economy. So there's a lot more things that have to be done at the national level and spill down to the local level that will make our cities more amenable. And there's a lot that has to be done on the state and local level as well, because land use decisions and infrastructure decisions are state, local, and regional. Right. And I agree with Jeannie on the national, absolutely. And I also agree with uh, your hypothesis that in fact, this will lead to an increased surge for affordable places, which means uh, not the coast, which means the Southeast, which means not the Mid-Atlantic Northeast region. So I think that trend that was already in place will in fact accelerate, but the need for affordable housing is a national need and we yeah. will need to put solutions in place. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm in the Southeast and that's good news, but it's bad news in terms of balanced development and growth across the country. Um, so what? give me a thought, 30 seconds, any last statement that you would want to leave as a result of what the conversation we had and what's going on today. Leadership and cooperation will build stronger communities and we need to be paying attention to everyone in the community as we design our cities and regions in the future. Fantastic. Okay, excellent. Susan. Yes, the stark inequities that were in place prior to COVID are now in greater relief and we will need as a nation to attend to them. Excellent. Fantastic. Guys, thank you very, very, very much. This was a great conversation. And, you know, for everything you do at Penn IUR, Penn Institute for Urban Research, we know why both of you are so highly regarded. Um, thank you. Well, thank, thank, you thank you for your leadership and a wonderful conversation. We hope we can continue it. Okay. And thank you for your assistance to Penn IUR. It's much appreciated. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.